0: Hello and welcome to M&A on Trial, which is a podcast about those bits of M&A deals which, dare I say it, go wrong.
1: Each week we'll be discussing what happens in real life when those words negotiated late into the night end up in dispute.
0: We are your hosts, Harriet Martin, Senior Associate at Clifford Chance specialising in M&A...
1: And Sachin Tricker, I'm a partner at Clifford Chance, specialising in arbitration and post-M&A disputes.
0: We're going to keep it simple, have some fun and hopefully give a fresh perspective for those of you, legal or business side, doing English law M&A deals across the globe. So Sachin, our third episode and we're calling it Push to the Limit. However, we're actually not going to cover the most hotly debated limitations, which are your financial caps and time limits on bringing claims. Instead, I'd really like to talk about something a bit more nuanced, which is seller's attempts to limit certain types of loss. So, should we start with the basics? At law, what loss is recoverable for breach of contract? Yeah, so,
1: I mean, English law does have a pretty established body of of case law in terms of what types of loss can and can't be recoverable. What you're really looking for is whether the loss is too remote or not. Um, and you know, if the loss is too remote, then the law would say you can't get it. Uh, but if it's not too remote, then you can. the The line of cases really started from from that seminal authority that I suspect all law students over the years have come across, Hadley and Baxendale. Um, but it's you know it's evolved over time. And what you're really looking at is whether the type of loss was in the reasonable contemplation of the parties at the time of contracting as a serious possibility and if it that type of loss is then in principle you should be able to recover it subject of course to other rules around mitigation and whatnot Um, so you know dare i say it harriet i think the law will tell you what type of loss you can and can't get but we see in our deals um all sorts of limitation of liability provisions around direct losses and indirect losses and consequential losses, and you know I've sometimes wondered why parties include those clauses. Perhaps you could tell me.
0: Yeah, there... absolutely. So I think I think where you know this really comes to bear is so say in an, an SPA context, you tend to have um, quite long provisions on the, the sellers, and it is usually the seller's limitation of liability, although buyers will sometimes try to argue for it as well um and one of the main exclusions that we do um sometimes argue over as you say is an exclusion of the seller's liability for indirect or consequential loss um and by extension direct loss which maybe you can tell me a little bit more about mm-hmm. um is sort of like, i suppose you know understood to be something that the the buyer can can claim for so yes yeah, so indirect consequential loss Words thrown about all the time, crossed out, put back in in drafts. What does it really right. mean in practice? Yeah, I mean
1: these are quite amorphous concepts, mm. um, you know. And I, I wish I could tell you that the law has a very, very clear mm. um, understanding and definition as to what these what these terms mean. I mean, quite often, in my experience. Um, you, it's one of those things where it's quite difficult to describe precisely what it is. But once you see the type of loss, you can decide whether it's direct or consequential. I mean, what what you're really looking at with a direct loss is is a loss that naturally flows from from the breach, right? So put aside the particular circumstances of the deal. Perhaps put a put to one side whether there was an intervening cause or or a, it's one step removed from the wrong. If it naturally flows from from the breach, then. It is almost certainly going to be a direct loss and you can cover it Um, uh, so you can recover it, I should say. And that seems fair enough to me. Right. It seems pretty radical to exclude uh, a loss which naturally and would always flow from from the breach that uh, that occurs. Uh, But, you know, these more indirect consequential losses that are one step removed that rely upon an intervening act those become a little more difficult to conceptualise and they become a little bit more abstract and quite common for parties, therefore, to exclude them.
0: And do you have any sort of real-life examples of, um, I don't know, consequential losses or arguments about what type a particular yeah. type of loss where you've had an argument about whether it was consequential or, or not?
1: Yeah, I mean, let's, so let's take an example where a, a, a party um, fails to make a sum of a, a payment. Right. Let's say the buyer fails to make a, a payment of a sum of money or something like that, and the seller says, "Oh well, I would have invested that money um, in another venture, and I would have generated the following return on that, and that's my loss." Right. That, to my mind, is a consequential loss. Right, because it is it is contingent upon a number of intervening steps, um, and you can fully understand why that particular type of loss may may be excluded. Right. Um, so that would be a, a consequential loss. I mean, if you look at it the other way around, let's say um, there is a breach by the seller of a warranty, then you'd say the natural loss that flows from that um, would be the loss in the value of shares. Right? So I would say that is uh, a, a direct loss that flows from the, uh, from the breach. And it would be very harsh, I think, to exclude that type of loss. Um, so, you know, that's how it sometimes comes up in practice.
0: And I think what we sometimes see um, on a sell side is a seller arguing that loss of profit should be excluded, so they're not liable for any loss of profit. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you What would your take on on that be? You
1: know lo- loss of profit is quite an interesting one. Um, it is commonly excluded, uh, and in fact, sometimes specified as being excluded.
0: Uh, even even if it's direct.
1: <laughs> even if it's direct. So, you know, as, as you pointed out there by inference, a loss of profit can be a direct loss and it can be a consequential loss. It depends, really, on the particular facts. Um, so sometimes there's a loss of, loss of profits on this particular deal or it may be a loss of profits on a different project down the line. Um, one might be direct, one might be consequential. Um, and, you know, it, it seems to me to be more common uh to exclude loss of profits to the extent they are consequential less common to exclude loss of profits if they are a direct loss but you've got to be careful with your wording yeah right, in your clause because if you leave that you know unclear there's a risk
0: and what about management time does this come up quite a lot because okay, this is another thing that you do see cropping up you know sellers trying to exclude um, any liability for management time does that is that something that comes up in real life much
1: Uh, Remarkably often, actually, I've got to say. I mean, um, uh, you know, parties feel that they've spent a lot of time investigating a particular situation, um, investing a lot of management time in in doing that, and they they attach a value to it and they try and recover it.
0: Right, so this is a loss that, you know, is... It probably comes up so much because, I guess, in almost every breach, there's going to be a lot of management time involved, which is why it's probably drawn out in, in, in... contracts as a specific point to either exclude or or not yeah
1: absolutely and and there is actually another problem with management time um, which is causation right it's proving um, the causative link between the two because quite often uh, management would have been paid anyway right for the time that they incurred if they are salaried employees for example um, they would have received their salary even if this breach had happened or not so sure, management might have spent some time on a, on a particular issue, but prove that that was an additional loss suffered uh, as opposed to something else. So management time is, you know, it's one of those heads of loss that is felt very strongly, very difficult to recover.
0: Yeah, I think that's. I think it's really interesting. What we're really getting from this conversation is that there's all sorts of kind of costs incurred, and actually the art of putting or the yeah, the art of putting one thing or arguing which things should go into which bucket um, probably keeps you very busy. I imagine it, s- it certainly <laughs>
1: does keep you very busy. And, and one thing I would say, perhaps as a threshold point, is that when something goes wrong, right, when there is a breach or a legal wrong or something like that, it's typically the first question that that people ask, which is, what can I get, right? What can I recover? And the next thing you look at is your limitation of liability clause, right? So those clauses really, when you get to a dispute setting, are so important. And I just wonder how much attention is
0: given to the Harriet. Oh, don't worry. Plenty of attention <laughs> is given late into the night, but plenty of attention. Um, I would say that there is a clause that we do often put into, well, we always put into SBAs acting on the sales side, which is that um, none of these limitations apply in the case of fraud. And I believe that that is because um, there is a risk that essentially you throw the baby out with the bathwater if you don't include this clause, meaning that um if a seller purports to exclude uh limitations on liability um even if they've been fraudulent then th- those limitations might not apply in all circumstances which is you know very bad for a seller but i think the thing that i've seen that's quite interesting is that in those clauses um you know i've seen buyers include um that the limitations don't apply not only in the case of fraud but also in the case of willful default and and gross negligence um that's right do you see you know does that is that something that comes across your desk a lot Uh,
1: remarkably often um and you know these are as you say common terms that you see in in spas um and indeed in other contracts they are caveats to limitations of liabilities and caps on liabilities um and you know they are creatures of contract there is no cause of action at law for gross negligence or willful default. But what the parties are really doing there, in my view, is saying there there is that they're talking about the character of the wrong. Right? There there is particular breaches or legal wrongs that they regard as so egregious that they will operate to disapply your limitation of liability. So willful default, you know, in certainly in its most stringent setting, intentional wrongdoing. Right? I know something is wrong but I'm doing it anyway. Right? These these types of wrongs are felt quite strongly, but actually quite difficult to prove. And and you know, for good reason, because they have such drastic consequences. Right, They will disapply your bargained for limitation of liability. That's a that's a that's a big deal. So, you know, quite hard to fall into these categories, but commonly argued.
0: You can see why there's a tension there. On the buy side You can see why you wouldn't want your seller to recklessly breach, for example, the interim operating covenants or promises that the seller will run the business sensibly in the period before the buyer can get their hands on it. Equally, on the sell side, sellers may want to know that, come what may, there's a limit to their potential liability. Unlimited liability is probably a very unattractive concept for sellers. There is is more, though, right, than just damages. Should we talk a little bit about you know repudiatory breach a little bit about sure. what that means and how that can um, have you know quite drastic impacts particularly for a seller
1: yeah so um, yeah there, I mean damage damages certainly is 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 a monetary remedy for for a wrong uh, or breach of contract uh, sometimes a breach can be of such severity that we classify it as a repudiatory breach and let's just be clear as to what that means because it's quite a it's it's quite a loaded concept under english law but you're looking at a substantial failure to perform right a substantial failure to perform a, a regular breach of, of of a of a clause may not in itself be a repudiatory breach you're looking for something which you know amounts to um as i say a substantial failure so you know let's let's say in a supply of goods context i agree that I will uh, sell you a car or I'll make and sell you a car um, and I deliver the car to you, but it doesn't have an engine. Right? I would say that is a repudiatory breach. And what that can do is open up the very powerful remedy of termination. Right? And, and once you terminate the contract, you're discharged from your obligations and you get a slightly different measure of damages.
0: I think that's very scary for a seller because you know, in my experience, a lot of sellers, what they're so focused on, which is sort of what we've been discussing this whole episode, is certainty. So they want to know that this contract is going to be performed come what may. Um, and so what you see sometimes is um, the parties agreeing that the only remedies available are those set out in the contract. And in particular. That termination is only available in some very limited circumstances. Um, how does the court view those sorts of those sorts of clauses?
1: Yeah, and, and they are quite common as well. Uh, these exclusive remedy clauses. So w- whatever remedy is specified in the contract, perhaps the termination regime, um, that is the only remedy available to a party. The, these are um, these are enforceable. The court will uphold them, uh, provided that they cl- they are clear. Right. Excluding your common law rights is a big deal, and the court will look for very clear words um, before it reaches that conclusion. So, you know, don't leave it to inference that the remedies are limited to what's in your contract. Make it absolutely express that you know the parties are limiting their remedies to that in the contract and excluding their common law rights. Then should be fine.
0: Understood. So I think probably now we should move on to, to key takeaways. So I'd start with types of loss so the position at law is the indirect loss absent any exclusions is in principle recoverable um, if not too remote loss of profit can be direct or indirect and it's hard to know at the outset um, which losses are going to fall into which bucket so you often end up arguing on a point of principle
1: and i would add the limitations of liability are are very common they are effective and they can be very powerful they give parties certainty up front in terms of perhaps the amount that they can uh, be exposed to. Um, But, you know, it's also very common to see caveats to those limitation of liability clauses, particularly in the event of fraud or willful default and gross negligence. Those caveats um, will operate to disapply limitation of liability uh, clause um, and, dare I say, quite often invoked when losses exceed the caps provided.
0: And then I think lastly, if you're going to agree to exclude effectively your common law remedies, so the powerful one you mentioned of termination um, in, in the cases of repudiatory breach, go into it eyes open. So, yes, you might end up agreeing to it because of you know the, how the negotiations fall, but just know that that is what you're agreeing to. Great. Thank you very much, Sachin. Thank you. Next week on the podcast, we are talking all things termination. Arguably the most powerful of remedies and something not to be invoked lightly. See you there.